You have two brains. You have the thinking brain and the feeling brain. And um, we all have this relationship between us, between our two brains. Some of us are a little bit more thinking brain, recognizing what we're feeling. And then some of us are a little bit more feeling brain dominated. You know, we get overwhelmed by emotion or impulses or desires. A lot of what we understand as mental health is merely getting our two brains to communicate well with one another, getting the conscious part of your mind to become aware of your emotions, to accept your emotions, to respond in healthy ways to your emotions, and then also developing the ability to be emotionally attuned to what's happening in the world and what's happening in your life. And so there's a lot of processes and practices around those two skills, but ultimately, you could say that developing a strong and stable mental health is really developing your relationship with yourself or your relationship between your two brains. That is best-selling author Mark Manson, and this is episode 297 of the Yoshi Ginsberg Podcast. And welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 297 of the show with best-selling author of the books, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck and Everything is Fucked, a book about hope, <laughs> Mark Manson. Uh, you can find more about Mark, find out more about Mark at markmanson.net or on Instagram, he's Mark Manson. And I believe on Twitter, he's I am Mark Manson. More about Mark in a moment. If you're new, welcome to the show. Glad you're here. I'm Oshie Ginsberg. I am a TV and radio guy from Australia. Currently, I live in Sydney uh, with my wife and my stepdaughter and shortly our son, who will be arriving any literally moment. Two stupid cavoodles, and they are lucky, those dogs, they are lucky that they are cute when they're sleeping. <laughs> uh, that's said barking in the background. Um, I like to ride bikes. Uh, occasionally, I lift heavy things. I ain't only eat plants and every week for the last seven years I've been making this podcast. What is this podcast? Well, it's simply a conversation designed to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear in the next hour, guaranteed, it's going to make you think, oh, and know, perhaps help you make this day just a little bit better by bedtime than yesterday was. That's it. That's all I'm trying to do. There are 296 other shows. Uh, I also check in every Friday. Um, so please dig in, subscribe, rate and review, tell a friend. That's the best thing you can do for us is tell a friend um, how you can listen to the show. Um, to help encourage you um, to rate and review the show, I'm going to read some reviews. These are from the iTunes store. I'm going to say a big hello to Matilda. Matilda has written, you change people. I'm 13 and you've changed my perspective of lots of things. You make me think about what I eat and when I need to exercise. You make an impact on everyone that listens to your podcasts. They're amazing and I love listening to them on the bus. Matilda, thank you for listening to us on the bus. That is awesome. Jesse J wrote, uh, your podcasts have become a part of my weekly self-care routine. I look forward to your check-ins and your honest and real conversations each week. Um, for someone who suffered with depression and anxiety my entire life, you've really helped me feel like there's nothing to be ashamed of. And I should talk about it and be honest about it. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Um, someone who has a fantastic name, I believe their parents call them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero. <laughs> uh, they are painting a 25 meter long by 1.5 meter high picket fence while listening 
and that it's been a wonderful, cathartic, and entertaining thing. Oh, their name's Angie. Thanks, Angie. And this one comes from Kelly. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Osh is one of my favorites when I tune in, and I'm going to hear a nourishing and meaningful conversation between two thoughtful people. I'm the start of a long commute to work. This is very comforting. Thanks for the audio soul food. Hey, thanks heaps. Kelly, thanks so much for listening. Really, really appreciate it. Also, thank you very much to everyone who sent in a photo of, of where they're listening, um, something we like to call a podsy. It's just a picture of what you're looking at when you're listening. Just use your phone. If you're listening to this on a phone, just use your phone, take a photo of what you're looking at right now. Send it to me. Send us your email at gmail.com. Claire sent a great email. After she pulled over, she took a photo. After she pulled over. Um, in Newtown, where she's listening in Sydney, right by the train line. Thank you very much for listening on Friday. Really appreciate you listening to the check-in. Uh, Kate taking in the delightful flowers in Melbourne as she walks to university to complete complete her counselling degree. Ripper, Kate, thank you so much. And Sophie wandering the glorious Otway Ranges in the rain. I've only ever ridden a bicycle through the Otways. I've never walked, but looked bloody beautiful. Ancient eucalypt rainforests, just glorious. Thanks so much for taking us up there. Um, Sophie, and thank you very much to everybody that listened this week. Um, you can always just also shoot me an email if you want. Send us your email at gmail.com. And also thanks heaps for the great feedback about Friday's episode. I really appreciate that. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So let me tell you about my guest today. Mark Manson is a super successful blogger and now best-selling author. His two books, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck and Everything is Fucked, a book about hope, have spent weeks and weeks and weeks at the top of every chart that there is that concerns any kind of books. He's kind of like, I guess, self-help for people who don't like self-help. Mark doesn't really hold back. He asks his readers to take a long, hard look at themselves and make some pretty intense inquiries as to why things are the way they are and what their role is in it. Um, I personally, I've, I've read all his books. I've, I feel as his work has roots in the work of the Stoics, but if Marcus Aurelius and Ryan Holiday is a little too heavy for you, you'll, you'll dig what Mark Manson has to say. He and I caught up over Skype as he wrapped up his recent Australian tour. I sure hope you'll 
enjoy all that is packed into this very dense and thoroughly robust conversation with Mark Manson. How are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you doing? You want the honest answer? (laughs) (laughs) Of course I do. (laughs) I mean, I don't know you, but... Okay, well let's get let's get okay, go for let, it. let's get to know each other. Um, uh, wife is uh, thirty five weeks and two days pregnant today. You know, it's it's my first biological child. Um, we've already got one. She's a teenager. Yeah. I think, like any expectant father, I am riddled with nerves and excitement and nerves. And it's probably a really good time to talk to you, actually, because when I was reading <laughs> reading your book, I'm like, I'm going to be talking to Mark Manson later today. Which one's worried about everything? Is it my thinking brain that's worried about this or is it my feeling brain <laughs> that's worried about this? So I think it's, yeah. a, it's an extraordinary time to, to have a chat with you and maybe explore some of the concepts that you uh, sure. that you write let's, about in, in the context of my fucking life. Let's do it. Is, is, there, a, is there a sofa in that room somewhere? No, man, can- I... <laughs> I am uh, I am a well versed person in therapy, so uh, I can self reflect from anywhere. <laughs> so, well, firstly, how are you enjoying? Uh, are you enjoying your time in our country, man? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I love Australia. I always I get treated very well here. I get good crowds here. I I like it. I I feel like Australia is like a much more sane version of the u.s with much better weather <laughs> <laughs> right well it's, it's, it's interesting because we we uh enjoy this extraordinary status quo really of lifestyle and and ec- economy and and health outcomes and have done for decades and um yeah it's really not till you travel away from here that you go holy shit the rest <laughs> of the world's not quite like this yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you guys got it good. We're pretty, we're pretty lucky. Well, but I think, like anything, there's the hedonistic habituation. You just pretty soon you got it good vanishes, and ah, oh, there's fucking nothing on television, or you know, you know, get out of my way shows up pretty quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's certainly uh, certainly interesting. So you're obviously at an extraordinarily, extraordinarily successful uh, uh, blogger and author, and as someone who on this show particularly explores the way the brains work, I've been finding your writing quite fascinating and and definitely very useful way to kind of explore the way that I I personally look at the world and appreciate the world. And this is as someone whose way of looking at it, appreciating the world has turned in on them to the point where uh, at one point I was experiencing I was experiencing psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusions, which are horrible. I don't recommend them, Mark. But I do think a lot about the way <laughs> I think, which is yeah. which is tricky to do. What was it for you that started you really getting interested in in why people think the way they do, Mark? You know, I, I think I always had I was a little bit of a loner as an adolescent. I grew up in an environment that like I felt very uh, I, I just felt like the outcast. You know, I grew up in like you ever seen that movie Friday Night Lights? Oh yeah. Yep, yep. So that's my childhood. Texas football like, pickups. <laughs> good old Texas boys and mm. the highlight of the week was high school football on Friday. And right. I'm I was like this kid with greasy hair and Marilyn Manson t-shirts reading Nietzsche and smoking cigarettes behind the school. Like, I think I just, I was very confused by the world around me because I, I didn't feel like I quite fit in. Um, and so I, I just developed passion for psychology and philosophy and 
thinking about these topics. And in terms of myself, I think around, I think around when I was like eighteen or nineteen, I discovered meditation and Buddhism and things like that. And so much of meditation practice is simply observing what the hell your mind is doing and how it like runs all over the place. And so that that's it's been a long. I guess you could say I've had a long relationship with myself <laughs> in that. Yeah, it's interesting. Once you start considering the way you think, if you haven't got a good tether to reality, it can it can kind of unravel a little bit, particularly if you're in some sort of altered state, um, which I may have explored in my in my youth. Um, but yeah, once you start thinking about thinking, it's a little like trying to bite your own teeth. You know, you're a little you can kind of fall off the edge once you realize that everything is only the way it is because you have decided it is that way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Did you ever have a moment like that? Um, well, you know, I did some drugs. <laughs> I messed around with a bunch of stuff and kind of had some some pretty intense experiences, but I didn't have any sort of like mental breakdown. I mostly just sucked at emotions. And so a lot of my self-awareness work and, and a lot of my kind of therapeutic work was um, – teaching myself how to, I guess, feel appropriately or recognize the emotions at the correct times and, and then respond appropriately to each of those emotions. Cause it's, it's just something that I never, it never came naturally to me. Like that was, it sounds like you are to to put it in terms of my new book. It's, it sounds like maybe you were a little bit more feeling brain dominated and that was your, your work that you had to go through. And my, my work was, I was more thinking brain dominated and I had to like, I was 25 before I even realized when I was angry, you know, like (laughs) I was so disconnected from what I was feeling and kind of what I was going through emotionally that it, so much of it was just about like learning to identify what the hell was going on inside myself. So for for people that um, may not have been too familiar with your books, you you just mentioned two fabulous things that it'd be good if we defined for the purposes of the rest of this conversation. Can we talk about the differences between the thinking brain and the feeling brain? Sure. So uh, in the new book, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope, I kind of set out this this model, the psychological model, um, where I say you have two brains. You have the thinking brain and the feeling brain. And um, we all have this relationship between us, between our two brains. Some of us are a little bit more thinking brain dominant, recognizing what we're feeling. We're bad at responding to what we're feeling. And then some of us are a little bit more feeling brain dominated, which is, you know, we get overwhelmed by emotion or impulses or, or desires. And um, a lot of what we understand, I guess, as mental health is merely getting our two brains to communicate well with one another, getting your, the conscious part of your mind to become aware of your emotions, to accept your emotions, to respond in healthy ways to your emotions, and then also developing the ability to be emotionally attuned to what's happening in the world and what's happening in your life. Um, and so there's a lot of processes and practices around those two skills but ultimately um you could say that that developing a strong and stable mental health is is um really developing your relationship with yourself or your relationship between your two brains 
And I definitely could, I could definitely relate to that and it did help me describe to people what goes on. I've recently had to go back on medication after being off for a year and a half and it was, you know, sometimes your feeling brain takes control of your body and you start to have these, you know, physical responses and stuff like that and your thinking brain's able to go, ah, it's okay, that person probably didn't mean that and then the feeling brain's power over you diminishes and the thinking brain gets on top of things and then the feelings and your body disappear. For me, that feeling brain just stayed a little too big for the thinking brain to start to take yeah. control of. And the thinking brain was able to go, we know that doesn't make sense, but we can't stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Which happens quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody experiences that to varying degrees, but I think we've all had that experience where it's like you you start to say something or you do something, and as soon as you start saying or doing it, you're like, I'm going to regret this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating thing to discover to be able to rationalize and reprocess your own automatic thinking, um, particularly mm-hmm. the, the, the feeling stuff, which happens way quicker than the, the thinking stuff because it's so just yep. – it's designed to keep us safe, you know, from 100 million years ago when we were animals, where we still are really. But it's such a thing to discover that but then realize, oh, I can't use it all the time. Sometimes it gets ahead of me too quickly and my body's already reacting, so it doesn't matter how much thinking brain work I do, it's not going to work. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a trick, but do you think the key with living with both a thinking brain and a, and a feeling brain is, is finding a way to trick both into doing what you want to them? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's so much tricking, but it, it is developing the communication. I, I always describe it as a com- like a conversation between the two brains, because generally what happens in most of us is is we one of two things, either the thinking brain has no fucking idea what the feeling brain is, is saying or doing and, and the thinking brain's kind of off in its own little world. Um, so you imagine yourself as like this very rational put together person when, when really you're behaving very rationally all the time, or your feeling brain is so dominant that your, your thinking brain spends most of its time just, just justifying whatever the feeling brain wants to do. And the way I describe it is, you you you, you kind of have to treat your feeling brain like a i don't know like a dog sometimes you know like you you're not it it is the animal side of ourselves you can't rationalize with a dog you can't intellectualize you can't now let me explain why chasing that car was a bad decision you know like you, that doesn't work like you have to create situations and contexts of rewards and punishments for yourself because that's how your thinking brain learns and understands that certain things are good and bad. You know, and so that's just kind of learning how to work with each brain rather than against them, I think, is, is the most important part. And, and a lot of that is just being honest about our own nature and being honest about how f- kind of flawed and messed up our own minds are. You did a, a lot of, I mean, you, you do reach back historically to a lot of, you know, philosophers and, and, and deep thinkers from some hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. Did you ever find it surprising that super fancy universities with humongous, you know, endowments and stuff like that are running all these tests to basically prove something that someone in Greece came up with 5,000 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there's that old quote that I think it was, it was uh, Alfred Northwood. He said, he said, Basically, all of Western thought is a footnote to Plato, and uh, that's probably an exaggeration, but not much of one. And it was it was actually funny because you know we've part of the inspiration for this new book was just kind of all the political turmoil and craziness that's been going on in the states. But it's 
I, I kind of reached back. I had a lot of ideas going on in my head about democracy and how people are and, and how crowds think and all this stuff. And a couple of years ago, I went back and read Plato's Republic again for the first time since college. And I'm sitting there reading, I'm, I'm reading it. And it's like every single chapter, it's some idea that I thought I had come up with and that I was really smart for coming up with. And I'm like, dude, this guy nailed it. 2500 years ago <laughs> like i okay clearly i'm not nearly as intelligent as i thought i was <laughs> does it does it give you any i oh know i don't like to use the word hope around you but does it give you any <laughs> does it does it fill you with any kind of i don't know positive emotion that the problems that we're facing are the same problems that we've been facing the entire time, just the stakes and means of getting to those problems are different, but the actual nuts and bolts of why people behave the way they behave is the same? Absolutely. It does make me feel better. And and that was actually one of the goals with the book is to show that there's pretty much nothing, like I know social media is new and I know like smartphones are new and all this stuff, but like there there really isn't anything going on today that, humanity hasn't struggled with like it, there's nothing happening today you know other than climate change and nuclear weapons there's pretty much nothing happening today that does not have some sort of historical precedent and so for me at least that helped me calm down and breathe a little bit and recognize that like you know okay this isn't necessarily the apocalypse that's about to happen well, the apocalypse messaging is something that gets a lot of people off their asses and gets them moving, um, whether it be the apocalypse of a migration of a kind of people that look different to you. So therefore, we have to stop this kind of migration of these people, whether they be white people, brown people, whatever, or mm. the apocalypse of climate change, the apocalypse of Facebook having a crypto coin, all these kind of things. This stuff does motivate people to action, but we do get exhausted if that's the constant messaging, don't we? We do. And, and I think the, the, the apocalyptic messaging, I think, is a product of two things. One, it's, it's a product of, I think, just the internet, the, the structure of the internet in general. It's the, whatever appeals to the feeling brains the most, gets the most clicks, goes the most viral, etc. But it's also, I think, because we're flooded with all this information and because, because everything is immediately available at our fingertips, I actually think it's made us worse at maintaining proper perspective about things. So you, we've got this thing in, in the U.S., you know, a lot of people on the far right, like they've started calling it white genocide. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because there's like signs with Spanish on them in Texas. And I'm like, okay, guys. <laughs> If you want to, there is an if you want to make an argument about like you know cultural heritage and national identity, like okay, I get it. Like there's an argument for that, but like calling it white genocide because you know your local Denny's has a menu in Spanish, it gets absurd. And you know I think the climate change stuff too. I mean the science is harrowing, but we also forget that like there's we we've got a good. 60 to 70 years of technological innovation in front of us can still help us either solve or like ameliorate the effects of this problem. So, but the human mind's not good at big scales and big numbers. We're not good at looking more than a few years into the future. And so, so we're, we're bad at conceptualizing all these things. We're bad at maintaining perspective. 
Um, and so w- one of the things that I personally try to do a lot, and I've been talking, like I've been doing the speaking tour through Australia, and I've been talking about a lot is how it's the, I think it's the constant bombardment of stimulation and information removes us from that maintaining that broader perspective. And so I think shutting a lot of the stimulation out and protecting our attention is important to help us maintain that kind of broader vision of what we're going through. I do do want to talk about protecting attention in a minute because it is something I am quite fascinated by, but I just wanted to just to to loop back for just one sec. We spoke about how people uh, interact with each other and that while you mentioned climate change and nuclear weapons are are two things, but everything else is pretty much the same. I I was talking to my wife the other day that about this, that up until 2000 and basically really around 2007, 2009, mass adoption of touchscreen smartphones, right? Mm. We had been socialised to, if I say something horrible to someone's face in old times, mm. as a man, I risk some kind of violence uh, or I risk seeing their face turn and have a horrible reaction and then my hardwired mirror neurons, the empathic part of my brain, then reacts and I get an awful feeling in my stomach like, oh, I've just hurt this person. I feel bad. And that was almost an inbuilt thing that we had as humans to kind of buffer our behavior towards each other, if you know what I'm saying. And yet we have now an entire generation of people who have grown up with that outlet of just a fire hose of horrible things that you're saying about someone with no recourse has become a part of the way that they communicate and is now we're seeing starting to bleed into reality because it has been emboldened. Because in the past it was you're the only person that speaks like that, we will ostracize you out of the village, you're gone. But now this person, they might be the only person in their town, but they're like, I have 10,000 people in my Facebook group that talk this way so I don't feel like an outcast. That to me, Mark, that to me is a bit of a modern problem. Absolutely. I think the internet and social media kind of accelerates or amplifies a lot of these kind of negative human habits. You know, like, like you said, it allows trolls to find each other. I also agree that there's some emotional asymmetries that happen online. Like I, I, I I get this funny experience. This happens every single week. I, I will get an email from somebody being like, you're an idiot. Fuck off. And I'll reply to them and I'll say, hey, I'm sorry you feel that way. Can you tell me what you don't like about my work? And then they'll reply to me and they'll say, oh, wow, I'm sorry, man. I was in a really bad mood. Like, I can't believe you responded. Dude, I love your book. (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's just so confusing. But I think, you know, like you said, the, the barriers to that negative interaction, you know, so it's like, okay, let's, let's take what that person says at face value. You know, they come home one day, they're in a shit mood. Their life's not going the way they, they want it to go. They open up their email box. And the first thing there is, is an email from me. And they're like, ah, this fucking Mark Manson, like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind, you know, and there's so, it's so easy for them to do that. And then there's so few repercussions for doing that, that it, it creates this, this emotional asymmetry that, that the, the emotional benefit they get from sending that email causes far more damage on the other end. And so the, yes, the internet enables stuff like that to happen far more often and and on far larger scales. But, um, you know, it's still just human beings like kicking sand in each other's faces (laughs) (laughs) and and 
putting armbands on and saying, you're on my team, you're, you're on the other team, you know, like it's, mm. it's just playing out at a much broader scale and it's evolving much quicker yeah. than it has in the past. Uh, speaking of teams, I really did quite enjoy in your book the exploration into the step-by-step process of in- indoctrination and uh, therefore belief and following and obedience that organisations like religions undertake and just seeing the parallels between that, certain political movements, certain online movements around lifestyle choices, shall we say, and yep. that, oh, wow, we were all probably thinking we we're all so very smart, but fuck, we are so easy to get told what to do (laughs) yeah it's it's um what one of the big arguments i wanted to make in the book it felt impossible to write a book about hope and not write about religion and so many of my readers have been asking me to write about religion for so long um and i've avoided it because i i religion's one of those things that no matter what you write you're gonna piss a lot of people off (laughs) so so i finally in this book i finally bit the bullet i'm like all right it's time to write about this. And, and the, the point I really wanted to drive home in the book is that our religious behaviors are not limited to religion, that a lot of what we characterize as religious behaviors or cultish behaviors, um, they play out on more worldly scales in much the same ways. You know, if you look at people who follow brands like Apple or Nike or follow their favorite celebrity, like they, they adopt very religious positions towards these people or, or these groups and they draw lines in the sand and create us versus them conflicts. And, and all this is designed to give them hope. And so, you know, what, one of the, one of the things that's talked about a lot by like researchers and pundits is how the modern world is becoming less religious. Fewer people are going to church and fewer people believe in God. And, um, I, I kind of feel like we're not less religious. We're just moving our religious faith onto more worldly objects, onto political parties, onto, groups that we identify with, to celebrity culture, to brand names, things like that. Um, and I think that's, it's an important thing for us to be aware of. But I also think, you know, there, there are definitely repercussions for that. Yeah, because whether it be me being an idiot and only buying Apple products, I'm speaking to you on right now, I texted you on, on one earlier and I organized this interview on another one over there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I've just been evangelical because, oh, I can airdrop to someone else, so therefore it's the only thing I can have. <laughs> like, Dude, I, I bought an Android a couple years ago. I'm shocked at how much shit my friends give me. Like, <laughs> I have weathered more personal insults because of my Android phone. Fucking <laughs> don't invite anything don't else invite, I've done. <laughs> don't invite Mansion around. Fucking green text. Nobody wants the green text. Nah. <laughs> right, mm, New York exactly. Times. <laughs> green text. Don't come into my party. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get that iMessage. People will get, you know, it's, it's all, but it is, you're right. People do align themselves with whether it be you're wearing your Adidas sneakers and you give someone a nod. Like we're like motorcyclists at the traffic lights, right? You know how, or as yeah, a, yeah. A, a bicycle rider myself, you know, you give a little nod, a little ding, a little wave as you ride by going, yeah, you're one of me. You know, we align ourselves yeah, more and yeah. more, as you, as you say, we align ourselves more and more with identities based around uh, consumerist culture versus some sort of living a way of life uh, in the promise of a, a better life in some afterlife, if that's your particular religion. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, one of the points that I tried to kind of drive home in the book, but I, I don't think I did a, a good job of it is, is that, you know, I, I, so I've run my own 
online website and I've, I've blogged for 11 years now. And, you know, so I, I spent years and years and years living and breathing online marketing. And so I, I was studying and, and living and breathing online marketing, marketing to like promote my business, to make money for my business, for my writing and everything. And then on the other side, I'm like living and breathing psychological research, sociological research, because that's kind of the basis of the advice that I give. And after like run that, that experience for 10 years. And I started to realize more and more that there's not much difference between marketing and cult building. <laughs> like <laughs> all of the, all of the primary principles of marketing, you know, find pain points in people, find people's insecurities, find what, how they differentiate themselves from other people, stoke their insecurities, offer them an answer, promise them salvation, like all this stuff, like it's just marketing 101. And, you know, we just pulled it off the, the pulpit and put it on TV. And, uh, and so it, to me, it's not surprising that, that our culture is kind of developing these cult-like tendencies around consumerism and around, you know, political identities. When that stuff starts to have the ability to be manipulated, though, do you feel that we're heading into murky territory considering we are giving over our perception of the world like we we are no longer trusting what we see with our own eyes we are now giving over our perception of the world of like i've seen you know to you know use an example we spoke of before i've seen this many articles about how immigrants are bad therefore i'm feeling frightened as it's coming up to this election so i will move in one direction or the other but usually mm-hmm. kind of one direction without kind of understanding that your perception of the world may be getting controlled by someone who's buying ad space and marketing this message to you. Are we getting into murky territory around around that sort of thing, do you think? It's a really good question. I, I will say that, you know, there out of everything that's going on right now, the, the two things that worry me the most is one one is the the erosion of trust in society. I think the internet, again, the internet kind of amplifies. There, there's some asymmetries on the internet, on the way information and emotion is passed on the internet that, that you don't get on other mediums or platforms um, where it's like, if I create, like if you create, let's say you write an article that goes viral and it's hugely helpful to like millions of people, the easiest thing for me to do to experience success, like the lowest hanging fruit for me to get to also go viral and experience tons of clicks is to write an article telling people that you're wrong and you're a fuckface and you're lying to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's contradiction has become there's there's constant incentive to to contradict whoever's kind of on top of the mountain, whether whether they're actually right or wrong. Like how truthful or useful um the information is, is, is no longer as important as how much attention it's getting. And if something's getting tons and tons of attention, you can immediately siphon off a bunch of that attention by contradicting it. And so we've entered into this in the U S we, we jokingly call it the post-truth world where it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing that has enough scientific evidence behind it that there's not somebody who's going to say it's bullshit. And, (laughs) and it leaves us in this like really worrying place where it's like we don't trust the media anymore we don't trust our politicians anymore we don't trust corporations anymore uh we don't trust the police anymore we don't like pretty much the trust in everything is is completely eroding and i think 
Like you have to trust that the police officer on the street corner, like has your interests in mind. Like you have to trust that your government is going to properly regulate, you know, various companies. You have to trust that companies give a shit about their customers. Like once trust breaks down, everything breaks down. Like every, like all this stuff that we enjoy and we, all these social structures, like they exist purely on the basis of trust in one another. So that, that bothers me. That worries me. And I, I, I don't see how we, we rebuild trust in our social institutions and in each other. Like I see, I feel like we're exposed to too much and we're too bad at being able to filter information and understand like what is actually true or not. So I, I don't know how we come back from that one. That That's one that kind of keeps me up at night. Do we just all go and get Nokia's again and never worry about, you know, news feeds that are algorithmically designed to keep us on the sites for longer? Uh, you know, one thing I'm experimenting with. So first of all, yes, I, one thing I'm, I unfollowed all news media on all social media platforms because basically the clickbait driven business model is like it's cancer for information. So I just opt out of that. I don't follow any news media on social media. I don't get any news from social media. Um, the other thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to only read news items that are at least like 10 pages long because for a few reasons. One, it takes a long time to write ten pages, <laughs> so so it's if it's ten if it's at least ten pages long, it's not some journalist with a hot take who's just trying to cash in on you know the latest thing that happened. You know, there's probably there's research involved. They've interviewed people. They've thought about it quite a bit. So I'm trying to stick to long form content and books um, and see how that goes. And it's going pretty well. I don't feel like I'm out of touch with anything because pretty much the day to day stuff I just hear about from friends or whatever. And you also realize how unimportant most of that day-to-day stuff is, like how it just gets swept away and you forget that it happened. And if it is important, then it'll get scooped up into a long, a long form piece and it'll get analyzed and researched. It sounds like you're practicing one of the concepts you speak about, Mark, limitation. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I practice what I preach. Yeah. Because um, for, for some people, that limit, limitation may seem limiting you know in its very word it's just like well i don't want that i want everything why do i want to limit myself like why is limitation important important limitation is hugely important for a few reasons i think part of the issue that we're experiencing today is that we've we've kind of hit our bandwidth limit on our thinking brains and when you when you exceed your bandwidth limit on your thinking brain uh, you start resorting more and more to your feeling brain. You start to just be like, you know what? I'm just going to believe what feels good. So I think there is a serious question of like, you can't consume everything. You can't know everything. You can't be connected with everything. If you do, you're just going to drive yourself crazy. You're going to become extremely anxious and neurotic. So you have to limit yourself in some way. The next question is, is how are you going to choose to limit yourself? And I think this is a hugely important question for, I guess, 21st century life. Like, I feel like this is kind of the struggle of our generation is we we are like the first generation of humans that the chief problem in our lives is actually figuring out what to say no to, what to like turn down and ignore. And um, it's a skill that none of us have ever really developed or, or had a chance to work on before. So it's difficult. I also make in the book, I make a little bit more of a philosophical argument 
about limitation. You know, I, I challenge our cultures, and maybe this is more of an American thing, but you know, in the U.S., we're all people are always going on about freedom. You know, got my guns and my beer, and I, I love freedom. It's like I challenge the, the the assumption that more equals more freedom. I think there's a lot of very convincing psychological research showing that more in many ways hinders freedom. It creates anxiety. It creates FOMO. It creates less satisfaction. And so I make the argument that really what real freedom is, is actually choosing what you give up in your life. It's choosing, like freedom is choosing like, okay, I'm going to sacrifice for my kid. Like that is what freedom is. It's not being able to have your kid and have all your hobbies and still go to cool parties and do awesome stuff and have a bitching career. It's like, no, no, you got to give up at least one of those things. And what real freedom is, is being able to choose what you're giving up. It's not being forced into your commitments. And so I think it's an important kind of reframing of that concept for people. Like I think it's, at least in the States, it's, it's something that's sorely needed right now. And, and certainly in my own experience, when it does come to limitation, when it does come to giving something up, you actually by say you've only got room on your bookshelf for four books and you've got a fifth book. You're like, well, okay, if I take one of these books off, you put it back on and suddenly those books magically transform into some kind of incredible encyclopedia. You know, like by limiting yourself, you do, in my experience, open yourself up to uh, a far more focused and enjoyable and and you know, to be honest, like kind of simpler existence because your choices are really easy then. It's like, well, I do this or that. That's it. I don't want to know this or this or this or this or this or this or this. Absolutely. It's it's such a subtle thing and it's hard to describe. Um, I actually, like my big kind of epiphany for that was, was actually when I got engaged. Hmm. You know, I, I had been with my wife for about four years and it, it was crazy. When we got engaged, what I didn't realize is I had the, there was like this little voice in the back of my head and it, that had been there my entire life that was constantly thinking about like, oh, does she really like you? Are you, is she good for you? Are you going to be together? Like, oh man, that, that girl just checked you out. Maybe you should be with her. Like, wonder what she's like. Or like, you know, just constantly obsessing with like what women thought about me, what my relationships meant, whether I was with the right person, whether I could be with somebody better, somebody worse, blah, blah, blah. Like there was this, and and because that voice had been in the back of my head since I was like twelve, I thought that was just life. You know, like it was just something that I lived with forever. And then as soon as I got engaged, that voice shut off. It was like, no, the, the issue's done. Mm. You know, like you're done. Like this is it. This is this is your this is the person you're with for the rest of your life. And it was such a liberating thing. Like it, it actually felt like. You know, like when you have too many apps open on your phone <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and your battery's dying like instantly, yeah. you know, it felt like just closing half the apps on my brain and <laughs> <laughs> just be like, wow, my I have so much more battery life and I, my phone is so much faster now. Like, <laughs> I have so much more energy to focus on things that actually matter to me. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that applies to a lot of things. I, I would, yeah, I, I, I do agree. I, I do have a, a, a bit of a bone to pick with you, though, Mark, because I, I read in direct order, I read Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now, then I read Factfulness by Hans Rosling, and then <laughs> I read Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. I was like, 
damn you, Manson, I really enjoyed those two books. I didn't feel so shit about the world. <laughs> it's funny because I, I called out those. Those are the t- only two books that I called out pretty much my entire career. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I am the biggest Pinker fanboy. Yeah. But like, I really like Pinker's work and I think he's like such important stuff. But Enlightenment now just graded on me. Like yeah. it really graded on me because I think Pinker's attitude is like, look, the world is better than it's ever been. And if you're not happy about that, then you're just like, well, then fuck you. Like there's something wrong with you. And I was like, no, man, like there's something else going on here. Like it's, first of all, there's too much like mental health data to ignore. And then second of all, like I just experienced it in my own life that after subtle art, blew up and became incredibly popular. Like I I experienced so much success so quickly, it actually messed with me. Like it made me more anxious and depressed than I had been since I was a teenager. And and it like that really made an impression on me. It's like, wow, it's things going well can mess you up just as much as things going poorly, depending on the context and I guess the velocity of of the change in your life. And I think there really is something inherently stressful and anxiety inducing about having more options and opportunities in your life. There is something daunting about self-actualization, about being able to choose what you give your life to. Like that is, it's terrifying. It's terrifying because it's, it's easy. Like if you're, if you're broke, like hope is an easy question. You know, it's like, just go make money, go to Starbucks, like work at Starbucks, whatever, just make like pay rent, you don't have to think past that, but it's like once all, everything else on the Maslow's hierarchy is kind of like taken care of, it's incredibly stressful. It's like, what do I give my life to? So anyway, when I, I couldn't pin, when I read Enlightenment now, I couldn't pinpoint like what was grading me about it. And, and eventually I kind of figured that out and I was like, all right, I need to write. So like, yes, Stephen, you are right. The world is better than it's ever been, but sometimes things going well, like like our mental health doesn't run parallel to how good things are materially. Our mental health is is far more complex than that. And uh, and so I wanted to write a book about that. Right. <laughs> I did get the sense that in the new book, Everything is Fucked, that as you were discussing hope, I'm not going to say it's the super bleak picture because the door is open. You did leave the door open. But I did get the sense that you have a belief we might have, we might have thought ourselves into a corner as far as what we worship and what it is that we decide is important, even in the face of you know mm-hmm. consequences for what those decisions will bring us. I think I'm generally a pessimist about human nature. Like actually, one way it's actually been helpful. Writing this book was helpful for me to understand, I think, why subtle art was so successful. And and I think the reason it was so successful is that it, it was a pessimistic self-help book. Like, I generally have a negative opinion about human nature. I think humans, we're, we kind of suck. Like, we're not, <laughs> we're bad at being ethical. We're bad at being good to each other. We're We're very inefficient. We're very destructive. And it's, and I think a lot of that is because we're still, psychologically speaking, we're still running on software that evolved, you know, 20, 100,000 years ago, whatever. And um, yet we live in a, a lot of technology and a lot of ways to harm or affect each other. 
Um, and so subtle art was very much written from a perspective of like, you know, instead of most self-help books, which is like, you know, you can be anything you want to, you know, just dream it and believe it and you can achieve it, you know, shit like that. I'm like, no, like humans are shit. And <laughs> I'm going to write a self-help book from a perspective that humans are shit, you know, to help people maybe be a little less shitty. And this new book kind of takes that same assumptions about human nature and, and applies them to, first of all, like what we're experiencing as a culture, but then also a more ethical argument, which is, like I said, I think we're probably, our technology is outstripping psychological ability to like handle it. You know, it's like, it's like giving a bazooka to a four-year-old <laughs> in many ways. And so I pinpoint the psychological processes of hope and these kind of religious based behaviors and things like that, I think are at the core of the problem. And when I look at it, I think, you know, the only thing that can save us from ourselves is I think more technology is, is actually seeding power to AI and algorithms and things like that. A lot of people are, it's very fashionable right now to kind of freak out about AI and think that it's going to, kill us all to make better toothpicks or something. It's also fashionable to think that, you know, we're going to, AI is going to solve everything and we're going to live in utopia. And it's like, no, I think we're just going to be like, we're going to be the dogs. <laughs> it's like, we're going to be peeing on fire hydrants and we're going to think our fire hydrant is like the most important thing in the world. But really it's just a fire hydrant and the AI is running the show. <laughs> But if that's the case, then we won't know nor care. We'll just be like, Unreal, you're home. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it's funny because sometimes when I say that to people, like they get really, they're like, oh my God, we're going to be like the dogs for the machines. And I'm like, dude, would you trade places with your dog? Because I totally would. Like, <laughs> like dogs have it pretty fucking good. <laughs> just run around, chase sticks. Like food shows up whenever you need it. You know, like what's the not like? <laughs> Man, as we as we you know boldly move forward, and you did you did mention you know that our ability to cope with the technology that we are creating is um is limited because the the speed at which that technology is regulated is still only as fast as we can speak a word or as far as someone can read a word, that's how we regulate this stuff with our laws and regulations. Yet the technology is exp expanding at a, a speed trillions of times that. And yeah. our ability to regulate it might have already gone in in many ways. Um, you, do you really believe that we will eventually end up being, you know, how shall I put this? I want to use the word manipulated into happiness, but uh, encouraged into hedonistic and, and, and pleasurable ways of being by an overarching kind of AI that just goes, look, I'll just keep you guys occupied and that way you won't fuck everything up so much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know, obviously, but I, I think to me that seems the most likely result. And, it, and to me, I don't see, because I think that's the direction we're building the technology without even realizing it. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily going to be hedonistic. You know, I don't think we're going to be like banging sex robots 24-7. I think because ultimately human happiness revolves around meaning and purpose, like feeling as though our lives are meaningful. But the thing is, is that 
our feeling that our life is meaningful is an arbitrary feeling. Like we can feel that anything is meaningful. And so I think ultimately the, the technology is going to develop in a direction where we are constantly feeling as though what we're doing is meaningful and purposeful, even though in the grand scheme of things, we're peeing on fire hydrant. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine, you know? Like, I, I <laughs> But if we never know, if we are led to believe that it's been our choice to pee on that particular fire hydrant, will we ever know that, you know, we were manipulated into doing that and we probably won't? Probably not. And even if we did, would we care? I mean, think about it again. Like if your dog found out that you specifically took it to a fire, a specific fire hydrant that would make it happy, do you think it would be upset? It'd be like, oh man, thanks for bringing me to this fire hydrant. You know? And I, and I, I make the argument at the end of my book that like, this is already happening. This is totally already happening. I'm doing it. So I'm doing this tour through Australia right now. Like the tour dates are, were based on largely based on algorithms. Like the way I travel from city to city is based on algorithms. The price that I pay to get from city to city is based on algorithms. Food I order is based on algorithms. What's offered on the menu is partly based on algorithms. Like this is, it, it makes, and we like this because we experience it as efficiency it actually opens up more opportunity for meaning for us because it removes friction and it removes unnecessary stress. And so I, I think we're just going to like run into it with our arms open <laughs> because we're, we're going to see it as we're going to see it as a good thing. I mean, we already are. That's what's happening is we see these things as a good thing. And I don't know if there's anything we can do to, to change it. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just finished reading the latest Mark Manson book. Oh my God. What am I going to read? Oh, look, the Amazon thing just suggested the next book to read. Now I don't have to go find a book. <laughs> exactly. I don't exactly. care that someone paid to have that there. <laughs> and it's not actually my choice. Yeah, absolutely. Do you see maybe that there may exist some kind of rebellion to, to this, Mark? I mean, probably. But I, I, I mean, I think some rebellion is inevitable. I mean, you're already already seeing that. You know, there are people who refuse to get on these platforms or use these platforms, but I, I think it's inevitable. Like, you can't put the technology away. Yeah. Um, I don't know how serious it is, but a few months back, there was like a hashtag trending on Twitter called shut, like close Twitter or shut down Twitter or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, people were just so upset at some of the some of the stuff that was getting passed around, some of the fake news and stuff like that, that they started a hashtag called like shut down Twitter. And I'm just looking at it. I'm like, even if you did shut down Twitter, within three days, <laughs> some new <laughs> would just would just eat up all the attention and traffic and become the next Twitter. You know, so I, I don't think it's avoidable. Like, I think this is this is where our feeling brains want to drive us is is towards these efficiencies and and conveniences. And I think it's important to be aware of them and to understand the implications of them. But I also don't think we can stop the train. So, <laughs> Jesus, man. <laughs> the look on your face. <laughs> I, it's so funny. Like, I, I guess this is one of the interesting things for me since the book came out. Cause like, it really doesn't bother me. 
Yeah. It really it really doesn't bother me. And I'm I'm actually surprised and impressed how many people it really bugs them. Like they get I, I get a lot of emails who are like, I loved your book, but the last chapter depressed the fuck out of me. How do you get to it doesn't bother you? I don't know. I, I think maybe some of it is a little bit of like my, my Buddhist background of just understanding like like the, all of this stuff is so fleeting and impermanent and so much of what we take is important and is just imagined, you know? And so I don't know if it's good or bad that we cede power or, or control of our lives to technology. Like we don't know if it's good or bad. I think it's it comes back to what I talk about at the beginning of the book is that we we cling to this illusion that we're in control of our lives. Like we need to feel like we're in control of our lives, even though we largely aren't. And this kind of rubs up against that. Like when you start realizing how powerful this technology is and how what all the implications are, you start realizing you're like, wow, I am really not in control of what's going on a lot of the time. And uh, and that makes people very uncomfortable. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So for people who maybe like me, who would like to access a little bit more of this serenity with this turbulence that you seem to be able to access, talk me through how how you get to that. What's what's a, a few steps that I can, if something comes up in my face and just kind of bothers me <laughs> quite significantly? Well, I, I think that's a two-pronged question. There's kind of a practical question in there, and then, the, then there's like a philosophical question in there. So I, I really think the practical question is, is just to kind of coming back to the attention diet thing, like getting way more conscious of how you're, you're engaging the technology. Don't just mindlessly scroll through news feeds. Don't just mindlessly click on stuff. Try to be much more conscious of what you're consuming and what, what you're giving your attention to, um, and limit, limit what you consume and what you give your attention to, like be very strict about it. The philosophical question I think is just, and again, I think this is probably something I could have explained better in the book, like whether it makes you uncomfortable or not, it's already happening. It's already been happening. Like the, the stuff that some of the best stuff that's happened to you in the last 10 or 20 years has happened because algorithms figured out that it would make you happy you know so it's gonna be okay (laughs) and and again to bring it back full circle to pinker it's like when you look out across the expanse of human history when humans really were in control of their own fates 
we were fucking awful. <laughs> we were like killing and torturing each other in mass. So, so yeah, I'm okay with it. <laughs> if the algorithms want to figure out what we should be doing, I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> Mark, I will, I will remember your, your beautiful Texan lilt telling me it's going to be okay. That's what's what I will do. <laughs> <laughs> when push comes to shove. Whatever works. Whatever works, man. Whatever works. I, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me today. I know you're an incredibly busy man, but uh, it's, it's really, really awesome to have this chance to speak with you today, buddy. Have a, have a fantastic rest of your time here in the country, and uh, I hope everything goes awesome for you, man. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. So that was Mark Manson. You can find him online, markmanson.net. He's also on Twitter, I am Mark Manson, and on Instagram, Mark Manson. Thanks heaps to everyone that made this show happen today. Thanks to Mark's publicists and everyone that got him alone in a room for an hour on a big, busy promo tour that he was out here doing. Um, that's a rare occasion, and we're really, really grateful that it, that it went on. Thank you very much to Rachel Barrett, my show producer, who made everything happen today. Andy Ma, the birthday boy, who did uh, all the audio production on this show, and Mike Mills, who made all the music that you heard today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcasting adventure. Talk to you on Friday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.